Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming live at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Penelope Shar, MD, integrative medicine practice in Bangor offering detoxification, intravenous vitamins, bioidentical hormone therapies, and more. On the web at optionsinhealing.com or 207-217-8878. Support for WERU also comes from Susan Bakley and Chris Marshall at the 13th Moon Center in Montville, offering shamanic healing, art from the heart, through art, therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at 13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman, is up next. Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guests today on Healthy Options are Dr. Beatrice Santier and Dr. Constance, I mean, <laughs> and Constance Haffy-Dickey, who is a nurse, thank you, RN. They have returned to WERU to discuss ticks and Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses and how we can deal with the overabundance of ticks, which are apparent this year in Maine and the Northeast. Dr. Beatrice Santier is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and a member of the American College of Physicians, and she is board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Dr. Santier came to Maine almost three decades ago through the National Health Service Corps, and for the past 20 or so years, she has spent thousands of hours investigating Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders. She currently participates on the State of Maine Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup and is also a member of the Maine Medical Association and the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or ILADS, and serves as a medical advisor for Maine Lyme, a nonprofit dedicated a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing the prevalence of Lyme disease and related tick diseases in Maine. Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders to professional and community groups throughout New England. She has given testimony before the Maine legislature concerning Lyme disease in the state of Maine. And Constance Happy-Dickey is a registered nurse from Hamden, Maine. She worked at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor for 25 years and since 1999 has had a special interest in Lyme and other tick diseases and has spent much time and energy research, researching these tick-borne illnesses. Happy Dickey is a former board member of ILADS, once again, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. She facilitates support groups for people with Lyme, both in person and in Maine and online, and she's also an advocate for patients with Lyme disease. She's traveled extensively with Dr. Santier, educating medical personnel and the public about Lyme disease. Happy Dickey is a founding member and board member of Maine Lyme, a nonprofit group dedicated to awareness and prevention through education and advocacy. So welcome back to our what seems to be an annual June Healthy Options program on WERU, Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey. And we appreciate having you back here. And Thanks for having us. Great to be with you, Rhonda. The need is still is still prevalent. We still need to have the show, and we still need to talk about this. Just as soon as the need drops down, we can stop talking about it. We could it. just go out to lunch, skip this part, 
Entirely. <laughs> okay. Really, go dancing. Okay. But here we are. And what do we know? This, in my practice, I'm seeing many, many more people coming in with tick bites and all of this, in the, even in just in the last couple of weeks. So, well, it's, it's been huge already this year. You know, it was a banner year last year. We had the highest um, rate of Lyme disease in the state of Maine ever, 108 cases per 100,000 population. And when we compare that across the nation, you know, the national average is about 10. So wow. it, it's a significant issue in the state of Maine. Um, so far, as of May, there were over uh, 1,480 cases that were confirmed by CDC. And as of May 11th, there had already been more than 80 cases confirmed in the state for this year. Wow. So, it, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big deal and everybody is noticing an abundance of ticks. Yes. Um, I guess we expected it to be a banner year, and it's going to be. Is that because of the way the, the winter was, more wet or cold, or do we not even know? And that's the question. Well, it probably wasn't the winter so much as the two years that preceded this. Um, it appears that uh, big tick years follow, um, by two years, huge acorn mast years, and then by one year, huge mouse years. Sure. And then we have just huge tick years to, to follow that. And, and I think your your thought about the winter not, you know, getting the deep freeze without serious snowpack, it, it does affect how many of the ticks survive. And we've had a nice moist spring. Ticks like it moist. It's, um, yeah. But we're also hearing about it in places that ticks um, never were before. You know, I, I heard somebody the other day talk about on their farm, um, they had never seen ticks. And they started to see them last year and this year they're overwhelmed. Yeah. And that's in Maine. Yes. Somewhere. Okay. I can't tell you exactly, no. but it was up, yeah. up well, here or away from the coast. I actually am having this conversation with a number of people, and there is people who are saying it's worse than ever. And there's one particular road in Montville in particular that I know of. I'm sure <laughs> other people could tell us uh, about their roads as well, where all of a sudden, when there used to be just a few, it's it's crawling on the lawn furniture, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And then another, another place... Um, out in Prospect, her little location, she says she sees one or two. Yeah. And I said, well, but still, we'll talk about what we still have to do to be vigilant um, yeah. with that. Well, you know, you point out a really important thing, that this is a, a potentially very patchy distribution. It, it's not like every place in one location will be overrun, although there are some places that are in that condition. But you can have an abundance of ticks in one location and a mile down the road, hardly any. So it, and it kind of makes sense. You know, um, uh, the, the tick lays its eggs in clutches of a couple of thousand. And, you know, if, if you are not in a location where there have been a number of, uh, uh, in this case, for the, for the black-legged tick, for the deer tick, where, where deer have lain and therefore the tick falls off and lays its eggs, then, you know, maybe your particular spot won't be abundantly impacted. But if you go traipsing around in the area near your area, you might find a very different experience. So, so. let's remind ourselves what, what the tick needs. It needs uh, the deer and it needs – maybe you can describe that. Sure. 
Again, yes. It's okay. Because we have to keep repeating, it seems. You know, if we understand some of the biology of this tick, we can use that to protect ourselves. So knowing tick habitat, uh, at least for the deer tick, uh, the black-legged tick, it likes the uh, wooded areas, um, especially the moist, rich understory. So the edge of the woods, particularly, that interface between your lawn and the edge of the woods is probably the highest risk area. Um, moist understory, wood piles, uh, moist leaf litter, tall grass, it's, it, it needs moisture to survive. And so when we have a lush location, we, we get to have quite a good tick population, or at least the potentials there. So the eggs hatch out in the spring, and um, the larva goes looking for its blood meal probably midsummer. And the larva is extremely tiny. I mean, uh, not microscopic, but extremely tiny. Ticks get around by crawling. They do not hop. They do not fly. And they crawl up. So if you're in vegetation that's ankle high, the tick is going to be about the height of your ankle. If you're in vegetation that's elbow high, the tick is about the height of your elbow. Uh, The larva looks for its blood meal probably on a similarly small animal, typically a white-footed mouse. The white-footed mouse is important to this whole life cycle because if the mouse is infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, the, the agent of Lyme disease, it stays infected and it stays in its bloodstream pretty much its whole life. So when a tick feeds on that mouse, it has the opportunity to become infected. Mm -hmm. And that might happen at the larval stage. Or if not, the larva then winters over, uh, molts, becomes the nymph, the nymph in the following spring, which is now. So um, probably in Maine, usually late May, June, July, August, the nymph will go looking for its blood meal. It will feed on a similarly small animal. The nymph is about the size of a poppy seed or on a larger animal or person. We are accidental. You know, they they don't really want us, but... If we're there. But if we're there (laughs) and available, they'll take us. Um, The nymph will then molt to an adult. The adult goes looking for its blood meal in the fall. If it fails to get a blood meal, it will winter over and seek again as soon as temperatures are above freezing. So there are no longer any months of the year without uh, tick-borne disease being diagnosed. Now, the the adult tick would actually prefer a deer if it could get it because the plan for the adult is to feed till it's full and mate on the deer, then fall off and lay the eggs. So, yep, that little, you know, as I've always said, that little cocktail bar, <laughs> little little um, you know singles bar on the di- on the uh, on the on the deer there. Yes. Tick hotels, the tick hotel. Yeah. Right. So there are. Um, Okay, this is time for the scream. Okay, so we have a picture of Monk's scream right here. So everybody, take out their scream and uh, and and let's watch. Look together. Okay, but fear not. We have there are ways that you can still enjoy uh, being outside, and we'll we'll get to that. You know, I'm also knowing that birds carry carry the ticks. So even if you're not in a if you happen to be in one of those areas with less deer or whatever, we still have to think you're not out of the woods. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, and, All right. and thinking Very about bad. that is, I mean, we, we, there are a lot of folks who are interested in watching birds and feeding birds, having them in your backyard. Um, and I learned, I learned something this year that I think will be helpful. Uh, it was helpful to me. 
Um, Kirby Stafford is uh, long involved in tick management and uh, is the author of the Tick Management Handbook, oh. which you can link to. Um, it's on the main CDC website. There's a link to it, or you can. Our mainlime.org has. Mainlime.org has a link to it. So the Tick Management Handbook has some really excellent information about how to manage your property um, to reduce the the opportunity for for ticks. But along the idea of birds, I mean, birds do carry ticks. But Kirby says that largely they will be carrying um, nymphal ticks, not the adult tick, so that feeding birds October through April is probably safe in the state of Maine or in in New England, because Kirby's writing for New England largely, Um, whereas for the April to October, you've got birds returning from their southern migration, and they may be traveling with ticks on them, so you don't really want those ticks falling off in your yard. So good news. You know, October through April, it's safe. But that, but that's the, the the spring migration now for us birders. That you want them. That's when we want so them. Yeah. If you decide to feed the birds, probably don't feed them near the swing set, because if ticks fall off, they're falling off into your yard. Um, you may wish to uh, lay tarps underneath that have been permethrin treated, so that if ticks do fall off, um, they fall onto permethrin, which is toxic to ticks. Um, so, so there are some safety issues you can you can use, but mostly it's being aware that uh, you may be inviting ticks to your yard by feeding your feathered friends. Oh my goodness! Sorry, scream. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll be doing this a lot. I think right. Yeah. Everybody, all right. It's time to look. Okay. Oh um, my goodness. So, um, what? Um, What is, is it, has there been any changes in terms of, of diagnosing or any testing or anything that's changed um, that we know in the, in the number of years? It's, it's still yeah, good clinical diagnosis and pretty... It, it, it does. It remains a clinical diagnosis, Lyme disease. And, you know, Happy and I will tell you that our goal overall is uh, to focus on prevention and early recognition. Everything after that's doable, but it becomes more challenging. Um, So prevention and early recognition are our level best opportunity. And if we can, preventing the encounter with the tick altogether. Now, no news on diagnostics, really. There are a couple of things being looked at, but uh, nothing validated has come to the surface recently. But so many of the prevention things we've talked about, there is increasing data to support what we used to do as a common sense approach. Um, for example, permethrin-treated clothing. Uh, permethrin is useless on your skin, but is fabulous on fabrics. And if you, there was a, a few different articles that I, I reviewed, and um, factory-treated clothing seems to be more reliable than home-treated clothing. But that's probably because of uh, their bonding technique. Uh, if your clothes are treated um, by a place like Insect Shield, it'll last through 70 washes. They'll guarantee that. And really, if you review... Seven zero. Seven zero. Um, if you review their data, I mean, it still has more than 80%, more than 90%, really, of the chemical in the clothing after that. So 
a, a pretty good technique. But the cool article that I discovered is if you treat your shoes and socks and pants and you do the tuck your pants, shirt into your pants, pants and socks, but shoes, socks and pants, there is a 70% reduction in tick attachments. Wow. That is huge. <laughs> so really getting your hiking boots, getting your sneakers, really doing that um, carefully. Yeah. And that, well, I think you do have to spray. We we spray ours yeah. in our house. And the socks. And socks. And, and the sp- socks. Spray ahead of time. Let it dry in. Once it's dried in, it's, it's really fairly inert. It's there. And... Uh, dr- and get your socks and shoes. Absolutely, it it makes a difference. And tucking in, and because I, I um, have that idea that it's that waistband that seems any of those openings that seem vulnerable. So perhaps permethrin clothing, the pants. Yeah. What? No, you can do the whole thing, and you yes. know that further protects. But remember, yeah. ticks crawl, and yes. they crawl up. So if they're coming from down up Mm -hmm. and you have your lower clothing treated, you really have created a significant uh, barrier. Gators would probably be a good idea. Gators are a good idea, and there's a great company now called Dog Not Gone from the Skowhegan area. Dog Dog Not Gone. Not? They first um, did apparel for animals um, but now they're expanding into human apparel and they have gators um, that are permanently treated so they work the same as an insect shield product and they have vests for humans so that if you're going out to mow the lawn or work in the garden you can just throw a vest on top of your clothing they have hats, neckerchiefs and they have um, dog and horse vests um, for your animals so let, for some people who may not know, permethrin is it's a, it's from chrysanthemum. Yeah, a chrysanthemum derivative, derivative and synthetically made now. But, right. Um, right. But, yeah. So we, do we know about the safety? What do we know? Because that's my group. Yeah. And okay. our, 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 I can't put anything chemical uh, near me. So, and I don't mean that in a, no. in a bad way, and I say that with that tone of voice. And I, I, I feel the same way. Um, so what do we what do we know about some of the safety of these, or do we? Well, you know, there's a fair amount known. It, it's it's always complicated to know all of these things, but the safety data on permethrin for uh, topical exposure is excellent. Um, you know, um, it, can it be a skin irritant? Yes, if you apply it directly to your skin. Um, the the issue for permethrin is the inhalation. That is. Um, probably the the highest risk area, and so we always tell folks spray in an open location, go outside. Um, it you know inhaling permethrin is not good for you. Once it bonds to the fabric, we're done. Um, now permethrin is not only used as a fabric um, a spray. There are permethrin has been used as a um, lawn spray or other kinds of stuff. It's important to know that it is toxic to ticks. Um, it is toxic to mosquitoes, so that's good. You get, you know, more than that. It is also toxic to other arthropods, and so there are, it probably has some toxicity for fish, so we have to avoid watershed um, permethrin. Uh, it has some toxicity perhaps for other um, insects 
and um, in, including like bees, it's usually mm. a direct application kind of toxicity. And the important other is cats. Cats do not have the enzyme to break down permethrin. We do. Um, and so uh, in its wet form, not good for your cat. Once it's dried in, we're good. So, And it's a chemical just like even the naturally occurring chemicals. Another new piece of information I learned, uh, see, uh, yellow cedar oil. Just read about this <laughs> this you? week. I was going to bring that up. That's yeah. great. Tell us what you know. Well, yellow cedar oil appears to be um, comparable and in some instances even better than permethrin um, in clothing that has been treated with it. Now, the availability of it is the problem. I don't think it's actually available. But, uh, Mark, it, it is a chemical called nootcatone, N-O-O-T-K-A-T-O-N-E. And in a couple of studies that I have uh, seen, it has been as effective as and s- even superior to some of the other um, uh, chemicals that are used to treat fabric. So this is in a fabric application. So I'm looking forward to that as a, uh, an available product in the future, at, at the very least, for uh, clothing treatment. What we don't know about it at this point is how, for how long it, it will last. So, right. Uh, but two weeks, it looks like two weeks is a, is a good bet. And that's, you know, that's kind of when you treat your own clothing with permethrin, that's what you can uh, count on is, is two weeks. Really? You- several, well, several washes. But, you know, we know that two weeks is... What about sure. the sprays if you're spraying your boots? Should you do that I would repeat it every, yeah. right. every couple of weeks probably. Right. Makes Especially if sense. you've been hiking and it's wet. And, yep. Yeah. So it is a, it's a question. And we have, you know, we are dealing with chemicals. Right. And we are, we're weighing. We have to make those educated, what can we live with right. conversations. I know people are talking about cedar oil. People talk about the rose geranium, um, those essential oils. But... And the lemon, eucalyptus, but it seems to me you ha- you have to apply those salt very very frequently. And, and that's that, yeah. When especially when you're applying to skin, you know, using yes. those as repellents on the skin, it's important to talk about skin repellents. Yes, we'll you know, do that. Mm-hmm. When you do apply a repellent, it has to be uh, interacting with the skin, both heat and oils, and that's what creates the vapor layer that makes it repellent. So when we apply these. Um, this, the, the ones we have the, the real um, demanding studies on are DEET, which we have 60-plus years of safety and efficacy data on, um, uh, Picaridin, um, uh, IR3535, and oil of lemon eucalyptus, which has a, a chemical name that is abbreviated PMD. And those have actually been looked at for safety and efficacy. Although the oil of lemon eucalyptus was not required to do that, um, a group did submit their data for evaluation. There are certain chemicals, um, essential oils, for example, that fall into a category on the EPA called 25B. They are considered to be essentially safe compounds. They are household items and therefore not subject to the same requirements. But but there are... um, data to show us that they can act as skin irritants um, and in general the efficacy has not been as long lasting 
as some of these other products, the synthetic products like DEET, where you can get um, a, a 4, 8, or 12-hour persistence. Um, so we are often having to reapply essential oil kinds of things, and we don't have the same body of safety and efficacy data. So. Right. So we're making a differentiation between what goes on fabric and what then goes on your skin. And uh, so we're saying the, uh, these, the, the uh, permethrin and perhaps the yellow cedar oil are fabric. And I, w- I just also want to say that anytime we're mentioning a product, we are not affiliated with Insect Shield. <laughs> no. We get no, we get, I, we, we are not buying, you know, going on vacation because of all the uh, commissions no. we are not getting. All the commissions we're not getting. getting. Okay. Yeah. Um, but these are just services and things that are available. And just to know when you are using those kinds of things yourself that you do have to reapply often. Um, some people say, I have clients, well, I, I did it and I'm never washing my clothes again. <laughs> Every month or something, right. I'm going to get my seven washes. I don't know if, if if it doesn't bond to the fabric as well as the the more commercially dipped. Whether that really makes a difference, but yeah. but think about it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Don't know. Think just yes, we don't know. But uh, so you might want to wash your clothes and just reapply a little bit more often. Why, why not? Um, we'll all appreciate it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so deep twenty percent. Um, at least 23%, more than 50%, you're probably not getting added value. Um, And the key to safe use of DEET is wash it off when your adventure's over. Um, The issues that have been identified over time have been high-dose, repetitive applications over an extended period of time without washing it off in between. So Mm. wash it off. Yeah, and what about children? You know, it's approved without restriction, mm. without restriction wow. by age or by pregnancy mm. or anything else. But I'm a pediatrician. I'm a simple thinker. You know, children who are um, small, when they're young, uh, their body surface area is so much greater than their weight. You have to use your head. I mean, I don't like the idea of chemicals on very small children's skin at all. But even oil of lemon eucalyptus, it, it is not approved under age three. Now, DEET is approved all the well, way down. We, so. we can have another conversation about why that possibly could be. But, yeah. um, but are we skeptical? Yes. But um, yeah. we don't know. I'm yeah, not. But it's not. I mean, yeah. so. So uh, the other thing with the oil, uh, the eucalyptus, the uh, lemon uh, oil of the eucalyptus, are you diluting it? I don't believe you're putting it full strength on your skin. That's that's one think, of the Kathy? problems that we keep hearing from people is um, the the approved kind, the kind that has been shown to be effective for at least six hours, is lemon eucalyptus oil. That's one oil from a yes. particular plant. Yes. Many people are putting lemon oil and eucalyptus oh, oil oh, no, no, no. together and thinking that that's the same thing. No, lemon eucalyptus oil is the plant. Right. And I don't have the Latin. And I then when they, you know, when people make these mixtures, are they using the same um, vehicle in which they're mixing, you know, are they using the same concentrations? Um, 
Right. There's no data to you know yeah. show that we don't these know the recipes are really as effective as people would like them to be. We really don't know the active concentration at right. this point. Right. Well, we need to know because I, mean, I, I know a lot of people would be willing to use that and and be willing to reapply every 15 minutes right. and be happy to and you know. Right. I just want to say we've been talking for quite a while here, and you're tuned to uh, WERU Community Radio Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman. As I said, this is Healthy Options, and we're speaking with Lyme specialist, Dr. Beatrice Santier. No, we, we, the, a woman who has, a doctor who has investigated and knows something about Lyme. <laughs> <laughs> and Constance Hathidicki, a nurse who also knows something about Lyme and Lyme prevention. They've been instrumental in educating the public and healthcare professionals about Lyme disease. And now we're discussing ticks and Lyme disease and other tick-borne disorders. So... Um, I want to just finish up, uh, and well, we'll continue to do this. So, so the Picardin and the IR3535, what do we know about the safety of those? And it's a little bit different, isn't it, than DEED, or is it the same? We it, don't know. We don't have the same length of time on mm-hmm. those, but Picardin has been shown to be as effective and in some instances more effective than DEED at a 20% concentration. Uh, the claim to fame that I have on Picardin as Individuals with chemical sensitivities seem to tolerate that better. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I have been able to, and I'm yeah. pretty sensitive. When yeah. I finally re- realized I'm really going to do this, yeah, because, frankly, and we will, we do want to talk a little bit about it. I mean, I treat people with Lyme, yeah. and I know what that looks like, and I've decided personally. So everyone has to make that decision exactly. about whether, whether which way you're going to go. Um, in terms of this kind of prevention, pick your poison. Pick your poison, <laughs> and I—it's—it's uh, it's where we're at right now, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's all our lives, isn't it? Weighing and balancing risks and benefits of all yeah. the choices we're going to make. This yes. is this is uh, buckle your seatbelt or don't. Um, well, it's law, so that makes well, a difference. Oh, I well, there you go. Be, before it was a law, <laughs> you know. It, but I know what you mean. It's it's but figuring still. it out, and it's hard. And the IR3535 is from Europe. And that was used in Europe for a long time yes. before it came to this country. Yeah. So we have reasonable data on that. Um, it's a, a bioderivative. Um, the claim to fame it has, it was studied at a concentration of 15% and matched very well with studies of DEET. Um, it's mostly available as 20% concentrations now, and, and that's probably because they mix it in with sunscreens and stuff that changes its availability. But um, mm-hmm. safety is good. It, the claim to fame it has is you don't have to wash it off in between. I am a simple thinker. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. So, yeah. so those are the, some of the things. Now, if by some reason all of your great arsenal, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. it were, has not um, worked, and what are we doing? What are we looking at? What's what You find a tick, oh. and it's it's gotten through, and, and uh, so let's talk about the tick check, yeah. and let's talk about what you might feel. Let's talk about how to remove a tick if you find it. Um, if you um, use all of the things that we know that you can use, like permethrin on your clothes, repellents on your skin... Um, and do a full body naked tick check after your exposure, um, you can have pretty good results. I 
personally like to suggest a shower after coming in outside. And I know all the kids, you know, at our camp have to, where we are exposed to ticks mostly, um, they all have to have baths at night before bed so that we can really do a good um, tick check on them. You certainly reduce your risk, but I can tell you from personal experience, a week ago, um, my husband had been golfing and used his, you know, repellents and came home and did a tick check. And the next morning found a tick attached um, to his abdomen. The one thing he didn't do when he came home was take a shower because it's been so cold out that he wasn't hot and sweaty when he got home like he normally does when he gets done golf. And and he's a avid golfer at least three times a week for many years and has never had a tick attachment wow. on the golf course until most recently. Um, so it is important to do all of those things. Um, and yes. then if you find a tick attached, then it's important to know how to get it off safely and what to do with it when you get it off. So what do we do? Well, safe removal is, uh, there, there are two methods that are actually proven. So tweezers, fine nose tweezers, grabbing the tick as close to the skin as you can. So trying to grab it by mouth parts, not the abdomen of the tick, but as close to the skin as you can. And with steady, gentle pressure, pulling straight out so that, and you have to apply the pressure long enough, Ah, comes out hard. Um, It has a barbed mouth part and it it secretes a cement-like substance. So it, it... means to stay in once it's in. So it comes out with some difficulty, but straight out. Don't twist it, don't turn it, don't annoy it. The other method that has been studied and proven is a tick scoop. And using that, it looks like a teaspoon, um, like a measuring teaspoon with a V-notch cut into the front of it. And you wedge the mouth parts into that V-notch and you push straight across, and then you have a tick in your teaspoon. So kind of a nice way to get it. Um, I encourage folks to then disinfect the bite site. Um, and wash your and hands. And wash your hands. Because they do uh, do excrete bacteria. Well, tick yeah. fluids. You tick know, fluids. When, they, when they attach and they start to feed, theoretically, this uh, bacteria is in the mid-gut of the tick. As they feed, it multiplies, gets back into tick circulation up into the salivary glands, and the way ticks feed is they suck a little, spit a little. So gradually over time, they're able to inoculate that um, infection into the wound site. Of course, if the tick breaks open, so if you break the tick, I'm not so worried about the mouth parts left behind. They're going to act like a splinter or a foreign body. But because the tick broke, the possibility is that tick fluids have been now introduced into that wound. So that that goes from being an perhaps a low-risk bite to being a higher-risk bite. It takes some amount of time for Lyme disease bacteria to be transmitted from a feeding tick. What is that time? Um, great question. We used to say 72 hours. At 72 hours, more than 90% of ticks that are carrying the infection will have transmitted. And then we said 48 hours. And then we said 36 hours. Currently, um, 15 minutes, maybe? Well, you know, currently we're saying 24 hours. 15 minutes is an important number. And that's how fast the Powassan virus can be transmitted because it's not just Lyme. 
these ticks carry other infections, and um, I'm sure most folks have read about the two cases of Powassan this year, well, end of last year, in um, southern coastal Maine, or mid-coast, actually. Mid-coast. Mid-coast Maine, and uh, Powassan virus is a, a virus that affects the nervous system. We suspect that most cases have no meaningful symptoms, but we don't know this. When the symptoms are present, they are neurologic symptoms, and they can be devastating, and there is a real mortality. People die from this we one. We know that we had uh, a mortality in, Lynn, in yeah. snow uh, in, in Rockland. That's right. Is that two years now? Something I like think that. 2013. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a big deal. And, and maybe, you know, just maybe, Powassan virus is going to be the thing that encourages everyone to do true prevention methods. You know, um, as prevalent as Lyme disease is and as um, challenging as it can be in its later or um, unrecognized, more chronic kinds of manifestations, you know, Powassan is an immediate threat. And um, a lesser one, perhaps, in terms of numbers at this point, but... We don't know what's happening, what's changing. And I want to go into this a little bit more. There are two things um, I want to bring up. When you're doing your tick check, when you're doing your tick checks, yeah. I'm also thinking about clothing, to look at your clothing and also put it yeah. in the dryer, perhaps. And yes. uh, Now, if you have a newer model dryer, you have to put something wet in the dryer with it because it's got a temperature sensor. So our dryer, for instance, if I don't have something wet, it'll just be happily bouncing around, not doing anything except bouncing around. Well, the the good news is your old dryer people are in (laughs) good shape. There's a a new study out, and amazing. We've got studies on this stuff now. Six minutes on high heat kills ticks for dry clothes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) For wet clothes, it's something like 35 to 55 minutes. So if if you've washed your clothes, you have to pick... or if you've washed them, or if you're tossing that wet towel in, to to it's Uh-oh. longer than the six minute okay. thing. But but it won't get hot, so you have to do it. So yeah, that's because right. Because otherwise you just have nice cool so, air. So, you're so fluffing, fluffing, fluffing the ticks. The ticks. <laughs> fluffing. Not as not as good as as the high heat. <laughs> so you can wash first, which of course well, the point is not to wash first. No, no. it's not. You Tell don't us. want to wash first. If you wash first, you just have clean ticks. They won't drown. In the water. No. Okay. So then you don't know where they go. Oh, my Um, goodness. So you want to put your clothes directly into the dryer first. You know, I I did an entire talk yesterday at the Belfast Library about stress. (laughs) And and I said how to – the the whole thing is how to maintain balance and and, yes, in times of uncertainty. And that can mean anything, right? And and I do – I meant to go into this whole thing. Part of the uncertainty is ticks. And, you know, if people are listening to this, I I imagine people, you know, sitting there, I'm never going out again. And that's, you know, that's That's not not. the way to go. So the other thing that we have to talk about is our own immune systems and what we can do to stay healthy. Because your immune system, that's really what it's about, isn't it? Even if you do get something and we can talk about a little bit about treatment i know sure. because um we have to because um if you are on 
the the idea that you're healthy inside, you're eating well, you have enough sleep, you're exercising, you have a better chance of having less, of, you know, being able to fight this a little bit more uh, productively. Um, so it's it's if you are have a compromised immune system, all of this um, is uh, can be worse. So we want to keep ourselves healthy, and what what and that means again, all of those things, eating well. If you have an imbalance. You know, getting treated, make sure that you are keeping yourself uh, in, in tip-top shape, sleeping well, yeah. eating well. And we, we do have some data, I mean, although it's, it's very old now because a lot of these studies aren't being done. Um, but if you get Lyme disease and identify it early and um, are treated with antibiotics, which is the mainstay of Western medicine's approach here, uh, antibiotics – completely wipe out Lyme for 75% of people identified early and treated early. Uh, 25% of people, that means it doesn't. So, And by that, I mean a three-week course of an antibiotic wipes it out 75% of the time. 25% of folks needed retreatment. And in those studies that were done, they were retreated and did well. So... That's the good news. The bad news is a certain number of people, even treated early, go on to have more complicated disease, later problems, including arthritis or neurologic disease. Um, some, you know, th- those numbers are a little variable, but as many as thirty-six uh, percent of people later are found to have um, late manifestations or continued symptoms. That's a big deal, and that's a problem. There is a way to predict who will not get well with a short course of antibiotics. At least there are some markers. The short course being the three thir- weeks. The three we're weeks. talking three weeks At, right. because those were the studied okay. uh, parameters. If you have multiple rashes at the time of diagnosis, that means this infection has spread. That That's a, a disseminated Lyme infection. That's not a local one. So multiple rashes predicts the the likely need for a longer course of antibiotics. If you have neurologic symptoms at the time of diagnosis, so if you have a seventh nerve palsy, people call it a Bell's-type mm-hmm. palsy, if you have other neurologic symptoms, you are unlikely to be completely recovered with a three-week course. You are likely to need a longer course of antibiotics. And if you are just plain extremely sick, so if you have a florid um, fever, prostrating kind of illness at the time of diagnosis, you are likely to need a longer course of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And that's from early studies. That's that's some guidelines that people might be able to use. Well, not everyone gets a rash, first off, right. which is, if you do, that's great. Well, and, and it's, it's important to know that because people may show up just with um, flu-like symptoms, and everyone gets tired of hearing that word, but it's, you know, headache, achiness, tired, that dragging your body across the room, fatigue, um, a, a, a whole, you feel like you're getting the flu um, in high tick season, or if you know you have been in an environment that has the possibility for tick exposure in high tick season or not. I think it's important to make note of that and remember to give that information to your healthcare provider so that you can work together to make good choices. So 
you know, from the Western point of view, doxy, doxycycline. Yeah. Now, from there, other there's a, a homeopathic regime. I know this bio does does one, and people I've know people who've had the Bell's palsy and have done that and have done very well. I don't know if that's everybody because I know yeah. where there's something about biofilm. Sometimes if the if the it's a spirochete, that means right. it can coil into coil into tissue and such and it creates its own cyst and its own the, the, this is the bacteria and so to get through that you know there sometimes you need more than than perhaps just the antibiotic you, or another way to get through that what what what's your experience with that you know, or am I you're you're raising really complicated issues sure. about which we have very little in vivo data what we have is lab data. We have people looking in petri dishes, well, not really even petri dishes, but under the microscope. We know that this bacteria can shapeshift, um, well documented. It can take different forms, and those forms may or may not have uh, cell walls and, and all the things that our usual antibiotics go after. We know this bacteria can exist inside of cells. And so when we make antibiotic choices, which is where I specialize. Sure. And we're, that's what we're, we want to know. We're choosing those that will um, address all of the compartments that this bacteria can live in. There is some exciting new data coming out about persister organisms. And this is not um, just with the Lyme bacteria, but there are researchers at uh, Johns Hopkins and at Northeastern particularly, and probably others now, who are looking at um, the possibility that these organisms persist like uh, the, the organisms that uh, uh, are that affect folks with cystic fibrosis or other infections? I mean, they're, that, they're that means are, they're not they're not dying. They're not being killed off. They're that, not being killed off. They are somehow surviving the onslaught of the usual um, antibiotics, and they, there are populations that aren't actually resistant, they aren't tolerant of these antibiotics, but there are folks looking at what combinations of both antibiotic and um, things like grapefruit seed extract or yes. other or kinds oregano of oil and such yeah, might might be able to affect this. So, so we are also looking at, now there are different kinds of this bacteria. Are there different strains of Lyme and we want to talk a little bit about the co-infections as well. You know, yeah. um, I'm seeing a lot of people with a lot of joint issues, and it seems very Bartonella. What do you think about that? Because you said that that some of the uh, the rashes we we talked earlier. What did you say that there was something in the? Um, oh goodness, I'll have to listen. I have to go back in yeah. history, but um, that they're just different um, different symptoms. There are probably different symptoms from different infectors, and so sorting the history out makes a lot of sense. If if we're fortunate enough to find people early with just the rash and a few flu-like symptoms, they probably have straight-up Lyme disease, and isn't right. that nice? When people do not recover as we expect them to, making follow-up for any diagnosis and treatment very important. If people have not recovered as we expect them to, then you have to consider whether there are other possibilities, whether those possibilities are tick-borne um, like Powassan or Babesia, which is a malaria-like parasite that travels in the same ticks, rising numbers in the state, Anaplasma, which is a white blood cell invader, travels in the same ticks, um, rising numbers in the state. I mean, we're seeing a lot of these infectors showing up and, and more. 
Um, Borrelia myomotoi is a relapsing fever Borrelia. It's a cousin of the Lyme uh, spirochete, but it travels in the same ticks, and we're seeing a population in the state. Um, When you bring up Bartonella, it can travel in the same ticks. I don't know that anybody has looked for that in our state, honestly. And whether it's actually transmitted by tick or not, that has not been proven. It is suspected but not proven. Uh, Simple thinker. I don't really care how you get it. People know that one is cat scratch disease. There are probably other mm-hmm. ways in which we are exposed to Bartonella. But if Bartonella is also operative, then there are there are symptoms that we might identify with it and um, might need to go after in someone who is not recovering as we expect them to. Brucella is another that we don't often think about, but Brucella looks, you know. It has a particular clinical presentation uh, association with cows. So, you know, in folks who have uh, rash illnesses or fever illnesses, you have to take a careful history because really our goal is not to diagnose your Lyme disease. It's to diagnose you and find out what is causing your particular illness and to address that. Correct. So, you know, it's uh, you don't want someone taking care of you who only sees Lyme any more than you want someone taking care of you who will never see Lyme. I just, yes, I do want to say if people have just tuned in, you are listening to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman and we're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey, RN, about Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections. So the two doses of Antibiotics, doxycycline, I've, I'm still hearing that people are, are doing this and I'm, what yeah. do you think? Well, what's your opinion? Tick bite management. Let's talk about tick bite management. You know, I would love to tell you that we had all the data we need to inform that decision. Uh, the sad reality, like so many things, is we don't. And so when data is uncertain, uh, more than one recommendation might arise. The Single dose doxy, which is you know kind of a two pill, the d- super dose, um, is is very commonly encountered. It is the recommendation of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, um, but it is based on a single study. So that study uh, used as its marker for disease the development of a rash at the site of the tick bite, um, and they reported out. Uh, an efficacy that was in excess of 80%, saying that it would prevent 80% of disease. However, they did not include people who did not develop a rash but had their blood go from a negative antibody test to a positive antibody test who had flu-like illnesses. Hmm. And it made sense in the study because they couldn't prove that it was from that tick bite. It could have been from another. Still, Any one of us would call that Lyme disease. And so they only followed for six weeks, which means they may have missed later manifestations that showed up. It was just not a good enough study. If you recalculate the intent to treat and consider that one case would have switched the result, uh, it turns out it was probably about 50% efficacy in, in recalculation. So the recommendation... I think is is questionable, but the question is, does it do harm? Well, if you give a dose of antibiotics that's insufficient to cure this illness, you can, without getting rid of the disease, turn off 
the body's antibody production. So now, six weeks or eight weeks later, when someone shows up ill, they will be antibody negative, or they could be. And they actually saw that in their study as well. So, so everything we need to know happened in that study. So is it good enough? Well, it sounds like a coin cost. Yeah, coin toss. <laughs> <laughs> coin cost for me. Yeah, so coin like, cost. Yeah, yeah. coin toss it's, to me. It's, it's afraid not. Yeah. The other information we have is three studies that looked at ten days of either amoxicillin or a tetracycline antibiotic, and um, most of those were actually done in kids, which is unique because that's not often the case. Um, and although they didn't rise to the point of statistical significance in preventing Lyme disease, what they did do, uh, all but one case of Lyme disease in those three studies were in the placebo group. So only one person who was treated. And that kind of gives you the idea that, hmm, antibiotics might be beneficial. And then we have some mouse studies that looked at short-acting and long-acting doxycycline in mouse. And the, the upshot is the single-dose approach prevented Lyme in about 43% of mice, but the long-acting 19-day dose prevented it in 100% of mice. So that's the information we have. There is a little bit of that's other information. Available. That's not available to us, though. But it, no, we don't have a long-acting toxic. <laughs> so so the right. question is, what is the, the right answer? And the answer is, we don't know. We have the IDSA recommendation for that single-dose application. The International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society suggests not doing that, but rather treating for 20 days. It looks to me, you know, stepping away from it, like something between 10 and 20 days might be the right amount of antibiotic to um, prevent Lyme disease. So the jury's still out, but it looks... There is one other study that suggests if the risk of Lyme disease is 3.6%, you, oh should, you should prophylax. Okay. How do you assess that? What you know, is that? Well, people don't... You would need two things to make that judgment. You'd need to know how long the tick was attached so you could guess the likelihood that it transmitted infection and you'd need to know how likely the tick was to be infected. Mostly we don't know any of that. <laughs> so, yes. So, 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 so I, my recommendation is if it's a high-risk bite, and what makes it high-risk? There are three factors. One, uh, a deer tick, a black-legged tick in a Lyme endemic area. The entire state of Maine is a Lyme endemic area. Two, a, um, if you can see with the naked eye that the tick has fed, so evidence of feeding, so a visibly swollen and gorged tick. doesn't have to be much. It just has to be a, a little. It doesn't take much. Then that would be a high-risk situation. If you don't know how long the tick was attached, and almost always we don't, we don't know. know. And the third thing would be a complicated removal. If you had difficulty getting the tick out, if the tick broke, those things increase your risk for Lyme, and I think that those would motivate treatment. Um, some people mm -hmm. want to send their ticks away to find out what's in them. Um, the University of Maine is still promising us that sometime in 2017 they'll be able to tell us that. For now, all they can tell us is what the tick well, is. But, I, I do have people yeah. send their ticks to yeah. the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Yeah. And this quick turnaround does cost money, yep. but they do test for a, 
It depends how much. The, well, the big four, and you can also get more. And you Powassan can. Powassan and RNA. And, yeah. um, and the reason is I actually start people on some herbal products for the immune system because yeah. that's what we're really doing to really keep people – we're really yeah. helping people fight this. Yeah. And then things come back. Now, you, as you said, you can miss something. Right. You can, there may be a tick you didn't send in. Right. Um, so you still have to watch. Right. But um, I found it to be pretty effective for people. And some yeah. people have then needed to go on to Doxy for 30 days or something the, along those lines. Well, the issue that I have with Another that is herbs. we have about a window of 72 hours to start prophylaxis if we're going to. Because uh-huh. there's no evidence. In fact, there's evidence to to the idea that it is not effective once we miss that 72-hour oh, window. Interesting. So if you want to start antibiotics... What I encourage folks to do is to start then, um, and if you know, and then get your your lab test back if you are sending. And and there is, it mm. is it's it's not straightforward because if a person is well but you have a highly infected tick, does that mean that they were able to transmit? Well, of course not. And if right. a person is ill and you have a negative tick, no. Does that mean that this is something not related to the tick attachment? I, I, I think we're still coming back to the clinical diagnosis. Yeah. Which always. is, if they're sick, I'm not going to go by the lab test. It'll be, right. it'll be what treat, this is. Treat the person. Treat the person. And there's so much more we need to they, go into. We, I have to tell you about some courses online. Oh, very quickly. That would okay. be terrific. Um, www.limecme.info. Uh, Partnership for Tick-Borne Disease Education has produced at no cost um, to to the person taking the courses several modules, including one on tick bite and making that decision about tick bite prophylaxis. Um, it has CME credit, so medical individuals can get uh, free CME credit taking these courses. They are they're high quality. They're well done. And they're available online. And we'll have that on our website That'd as well. And, and anything else? I just, this is, this is great. We, as usual, we might have to have you back because we didn't even get into all the, what's a, what's a bacteria and what's a, a parasite. So anyway, here we are. You've been listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Thanks so much to our guests today, Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey. RN. I would also like to thank Amy Brown for engineering, Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thank all of our WERU listeners and supporters. If you missed any part of this program, you'll be able to find it along with other Healthy Options programs on the Public Affairs Archives at WERU.org, and it'll be streamed online shortly after the show for two weeks on WERU.org. I'm Rhonda, Fine- I'm Rhonda Feynman. I really am, and I'm wishing you all very good health. Thank you. Support for WERU programming comes from our listeners.